I believe that the, the real source is competitive advantage. What will really help companies succeed and thrive and, and win is actually all about talent and culture. Hello, and welcome to The Talent Blueprint, your guide to building a talent-first company. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Mary Meany, former senior partner at McKinsey and board member at Beamery. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for companies to deliver more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce using industry-leading AI. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Talent Blueprint. I'm your host, Alton Seidel, and today I am particularly excited to bring in a very special guest, uh, Dr. Mary Meany. Mary's a former senior partner at McKinsey and uh, who led the global organization practice there, and also as a privilege to us here at Beamery, as a board member at Beamery. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. To, to kick us off, tell me a little bit about your background and the work you've done, not only as a senior partner at McKinsey, but also some of the advisory board work you've been doing with us. Of course. And Sultan, it's always a pleasure to, to be with you and to be with the folks from Beamery. As you mentioned, most of my professional career was with McKinsey, uh, and I spent really most of that time working across different companies and sectors on the biggest organizational change management talent questions that they had, which I absolutely loved. So it was a wonderful experience. And then uh, last summer, I decided to shift gears and move towards more of a portfolio career. And so I've had the pleasure of working with you guys and serving on your board. I also serve on the board or the council, I should say, at Imperial College London and the advisory board of Imperial's Business School and have a whole range of different nonprofit activities and a whole portfolio of different companies that I'm working with. But it's a real pleasure to be with Beamery. And what's been the most rewarding part of your journey, either at your time in McKinsey or more recently in the last couple of years? I think what I've always enjoyed is being able to help individuals and teams and organizations do things that they didn't think was possible. And sometimes that's been small teams where you could develop the skills and, and talents of somebody and then just see them thrive. Sometimes it was with much larger organizations where one pharmaceutical company, for example, I started working with them. And when we started, they were number eight in their industry. And a few years later, they'd actually climbed all the way to number two. And they created such a strong culture and sense of purpose and meaning. It was really amazing to see that transformation. So at least for me, what gives me a lot of energy is working with leaders, with teams, with organizations. And, and helping them achieve things that they didn't think was possible. Well, talking about organizational success, achieving things that organizations didn't think was possible, takes us nicely to our next segment, The Journey. The journey. A real journey. Become the journey. The journey. You, you've had a lot of experience with different types of organizations, different sectors, different industries. How do you think organizations should think about measuring success when it comes to their people and their talents. What are some of the most important metrics they should be thinking about, or even outside of metrics, what are the yardsticks of success that should matter most? It's interesting, Sultan, because um, a few years back at McKinsey, we looked at a book that McKinsey had published uh, quite a few decades ago. And in the book, we basically had held up a number of companies that we said were absolutely outstanding and were just truly phenomenal companies that, you know, for the foreseeable future, we're going to continue to be outstanding. And and about a, a decade or two later, when we paused and looked back on that book with a big anniversary coming up, what we realized was a third of those companies had actually gone bankrupt or had been acquired by other players, but a third of them had essentially ceased to exist. A third of them were really struggling and a third of them were still excellent. 
And so that kind of made us pause and think about, well, why did we get it so wrong? And what is it that really helps organizations succeed and thrive over time? And so we actually launched um, the largest, the most comprehensive, the most exhaustive research project to really try to understand, okay, what actually matters um, for companies to succeed over time? And the conclusion that we came to sounds really simple, but it's actually quite hard to put in place, which is for companies to succeed and thrive over time, they need two things. They need performance and health. So performance is all the short-term operational financial metrics that most CEOs spend most of their time looking at. But health, what we called organizational health, was everything related to the quality of their alignment around a direction and a sense of meaning and purpose, the quality of their leadership, their their ability to engage with employees, with external stakeholders, customers, their ability to learn, the culture that they created. And of course, the most important word is the word end. It's about doing both of those at the same time with the level of passion and persistence and energy that's required. For me, the metrics that matter, of course, you have to have short-term financial performance. Of course, you need to look at delivering value to shareholders. But I think what we are starting to see is that actually it has to be bigger than that and broader than that. So it's not just about a small set of um, shareholders. It's actually about a broader set of stakeholders. And it's not just about short-term performance, but it's also about how do you really have impact um, across all these different sets of stakeholders over time, which means putting much more focus and emphasis on your customers, on your employees, on the broader public, on the whole ESG agenda. So you know what we are seeing is a much broader definition of success and of impact. And we still don't have the perfect metrics. At McKinsey, we, we came up with one and others I know are working on, on different metrics. But what I, I do think is becoming very clear is that it has to be much broader than just short-term financial performance. What was the one metric you came up with at McKinsey? <laughs> well, we called it organizational health. And we tried to assess an organization's, the quality of uh, their health in terms of their alignment, their ability to execute, and their ability to constantly renew themselves. And so it was a, a big term that covered lots of different topics. It's super interesting. And it sounds like that's a framework that McKinsey and I imagine other types of organizations that are going through change and trying to figure out what they can be doing better would need to start by approaching through an assessment of some of these parameters. But then of course, in any assessment, you're going to identify things that are easier to change and things that are harder to change. And some of what you've touched on, the sort of deeply cultural components focusing on employees, some of those things are hard to change quickly. And I'd love to hear when you've seen organizations, especially where you've given recommendations to leaders about some of the things that they, should, they could be focusing on, either on that performance or on that organizational health, what are some of the most common friction points that you've seen leaders run into, organizations run into when it comes to actually navigating that change, getting buy-in or, or executing on it? So the first thing I would say is change is hard. And you mentioned this, Sultan, but when we look at the data, what we find is that on average, about 70% of major change efforts fail. And then when you scratch the surface and you try to see why do they fail, what you see is that 70% of those failure cases are typically because of the what I would call the human factor. So sometimes it's because there's a disconnect between what senior leaders say and what they actually do. Sometimes it's because there hasn't been enough time and effort to really engage people across the company and explain why it matters and what they need to do differently and why this is important or to build their skills. And sometimes uh, it's because the middle managers, one of the companies I, I worked with, I was a Scandinavian company, their term for the middle 
management at their company was permafrost because for them, it was the layer of ice that just stopped everything from happening. The good initiatives from above, the great ideas from below, it just stopped everything. So we know that change is hard. We know it's hard because of a lot of these human factors, human dimensions. It takes a lot of energy and effort. There isn't a silver bullet. But I think what we found at McKinsey was there were quite a few things that leaders and organizations could do that would stack the odds in their favor and a process that was very helpful. And again, a lot of this sounds like common sense, but it's not common practice. And it starts with being really clear on your aspiration, not just around short-term financial performance and the, the performance metrics, but also what kind of organization do you want to be and what kind of talent do you need to have in order to achieve that aspiration? And then it, it follows pretty quickly with doing what you mentioned, Sultan, about taking stock and holding up the mirror and, and looking at, well, where are we today, both on the performance side, but also in terms of, do we have the skills to succeed? Do we have the mindsets and the culture to make it work? And then, of course, architecting a plan that helps you put all the different elements in place that will help you achieve that objective. And then having the passion and the persistence and the energy to make sure that this continues and that you have those success stories that help build momentum and, and give people confidence that you're going in the right direction. When you think about the experience that organizations need to improve or navigate when it comes to their talent, their candidates, their employees, and when it comes to navigating these engagement strategies, how to do better at whether it's because of change or because of things that the businesses recognize their employees need as new programs or ways to engage with upskilling or reskilling, what have been some of the biggest challenges you've seen from an employee or candidate experience perspective that organizations struggle to focus on? The challenges really vary quite a bit from one company to the next. So for a lot of companies right now, the biggest challenge is just identifying and recruiting the talent that they need. We've all seen the great resignation, the great attrition. It's interesting, I was speaking with one of the CEOs that I work with, and he said that the single biggest obstacle to their achieving their growth objectives is actually getting enough people, enough talent uh, to help drive the, the business growth and the business performance. So I think for some companies, it's all about how are we going to attract, and especially some of the scarce talent, technical talent that's particularly difficult to attract and, and recruit. But for some companies, it's frankly the process that they've put in place that is a huge challenge. So I worked with a, a big German utility company and um, they were fascinating because they had this big issue where a lot of people would quit before they joined. So their process was so clunky and so cumbersome and took so long that they would identify people, they'd hire them, they'd give them the offer, but it took them 88 days before they could actually show up to work because they had such a difficult, bureaucratic, slow process. And so a lot of people would accept the offer, but then the experience was so painful and difficult that they actually quit before they ever showed up for their first day of work because they got a better offer from a much faster and more nimble player. So that's a different kind of challenge. And then maybe third challenge is, so one of the, the companies that I worked with, a major pharmaceutical company, they were shifting their strategy to focus um, away from primary care to much more the specialty care, specialty therapeutic areas. And in order to achieve that strategic objective, in order to grow, in order to become more profitable, in order to serve more patients, et cetera, they, it had huge implications around the talent that they had. So yes, they went out and they recruited people, but they also had to uh, redeploy people. They had to think about a whole new development around the specialty care skills that they needed to, to put in place. And for a different set of companies, it's much more about, okay, we've got talent, but suddenly our strategy has shifted or the landscape is different. So how do we actually upskill and reskill that talent so that we can achieve the strategic objectives and frankly, so that they can be successful as individuals? The piece you're mentioning around upskilling and reskilling and redeployment 
as well as on the flip side, hiring new talent. I think many organizations struggle to connect the dots on how to approach those two things together. Because the, the point you made around, you know, eight, taking 88 days for people to show up for work and the, the struggles of actually onboarding new people, for many organizations, it's even harder for existing employees to find internal opportunities to move into them than, than for, for them to find somewhere externally, which is one of the reasons companies also struggle with retention. And with the pace of change of the world, so many of the traditional industries and some of the ones you you mentioned earlier, kind of companies that have this sort of internal perma, permafrost layer, are struggling with the pace of the change that's suddenly requiring people to change their roles. And in many cases, it might be easier to help reskill people than hire new people. But what is, I think, increasingly important is for companies to actually think of that entire journey from how do we hire people with the potential to grow into their roles and how do we look at our existing people as having potential to grow into other roles? And I think it's a really difficult dynamic to adjust to unless you start having a, a to take the point you, you made earlier, a very skill-centric approach. Do we have the skills we need to succeed? How do we think about those skills growing within our people or having potential within our pipelines? Absolutely. But it also requires having the right technology so that you can actually move people around. You know what skills that you have and you can create a vibrant talent marketplace even within your company. And so I think there are a lot of different pieces to this puzzle, but you're absolutely right. I think one of the big challenges for many HR leaders is even frankly, just knowing the skills and capabilities of the people they have today and being able to match them successfully into some of the jobs opportunities within their own company so that those people can continue to grow and develop and they won't actually leave. Exactly. So speaking of, of impact and what the future holds, what are some of the biggest opportunities that lie ahead for organizations? It's interesting because I my personal view is that we currently live in a world where actually strategy is relatively easy for companies to replicate and where capital is relatively easy to access. And so actually, I believe that the, the real sources of competitive advantage, what will really help companies succeed and thrive and, and win, is actually all about talent and culture. And I think that's the genuine source of, of sustainable competitive advantage. And the implication of that is that for a CEO, for a senior leadership team, the ability to attract, develop, excite, retain exceptional talent is absolutely top of their agenda, coupled with the ability to create a culture of innovation and learning and excellence, uh, a truly healthy culture. Because as we talked about earlier, that's actually what helps you succeed and thrive over time. And that's what delivers the performance over time. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Speaking of high impact areas, I know that you personally are involved in a, in a number of projects you mentioned earlier outside of the, the work that you do with us. You work with a number of charities. What are some of the biggest opportunities for the world more generally and some of the things that are really front of mind for you right now? Well, one of the things that I've been working on a lot over the last month uh, has been trying to help some of the Ukrainian displaced women and children. So I live in northern France and the EU and in particular France has taken some, I think, excellent decisions at a national level. So Ukrainians can come without having a visa. They have the right to health care. They have the right to work. And one of the things that we've done is we've basically, in our little community, we're hosting over 250 Ukrainian women and children. We've managed to find housing, food, clothing, baby equipment, medical care. All the kids are now in school. We've managed to get free transport for them. Uh, we found work for everybody. So it's been a huge effort and a huge mobilization, but it's actually been amazing to see the way the community has responded. So we live in the countryside and our neighbor comes by with uh, free milk twice a week. Uh, the boulangerie comes by with free bread three times a week. My, my barns are overflowing with donations. Thanks to Beamery, we have 
lots of computers that the the kids are able to use to go to school online, to be able to actually do Zooms with psychologists. So that's one of the things that I've been up to uh, and it's been taking a huge amount of time, but it's working. And what we're hoping to do next is to basically take everything that we've put in place and codify it and then share it with other communities across France. It's so incredible, not only that you've been able to do this, but how quickly you were able to mobilize. I think you you said when we, we spoke earlier, how important it is to move fast on these things and not six months from now when some of these things is going to be too late for. And it's so incredible to see what, you, what you've been able to do. Well, thank you. And thank you also to Beamery because um, Pavel, who leads engineering, has been absolutely instrumental in all sorts of aspects of our technology and our website and, and so on. And, and all your donations have been incredibly helpful. So many thanks to you guys. I'm really glad we, we can all do a little bit to help. This will take us to our next segment, Mary, as we look forward, hopefully, with more optimism on topics, both global and local. We'll, we'll dig back into how we can think about the future in the context of organizations and talent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. When you look at the landscape that lies ahead and these new opportunities that we have in front of us, when you look forward, what do you think is the right way for an organization to think about their recipe for success? What should success look like over the coming years? Again, I would say success looks like the organization has a distinctive ability to attract, excite, develop, retain truly exceptional talent and create a culture that that talent thrives in. So I think that's what success looks like. And then the question is, well, how do you do that? And in my view, the first thing that you need is a CEO and at least a critical mass of senior leaders who genuinely believe that talent and culture, um, and I think increasingly they are, but certainly, you know, it's not universal. I think the second thing that's really important is to have a truly strategic HR function and an HR function that really understands the business and the commercial sides of the business and is able to engage with business leaders and is able to embrace the latest technology, the latest developments, because there's so much that is happening. So it's really about joining the dots and being able to partner with the business. It's not just having a seat at the table, but it's really kind of that in-depth partnership. And then of course, I think for a company, any company, it's then thinking about, okay, well, where are we in terms of our offer and the value proposition that we have? And that includes making sure that you're above at least a critical hygiene level across all the dimensions that matter but then ideally being really distinctive on some of them. And that could be that you're just a great company or you have great leaders or you have a terrific jobs where people can learn a huge amount or a great package or a huge amount of flexibility. But what you need to do is really think about the different dimensions that matter to the talent you're trying to attract and say, okay, are we at least above a hygiene level everywhere? And then where are we going to be truly distinctive? Because you can't be distinctive across all the dimensions. So what's the one or two that we really want to put our focus and attention on? And then I think it's about having, you know, treating this like any other major business priority with the energy, the effort, the intensity, the passion and measuring it because what gets measured gets done. Having the metrics, seeing what's working, understanding what's not, making the course corrections required. So I do think it's about very much putting this absolutely top of the agenda and making sure that translates in pretty comprehensive suite of actions that get tracked and get measured and get addressed. I love the way you framed the focus on hygiene levels and also picking one or two battles. I think it's so easy for businesses to get lost in the noise of tracking too many things, particularly in an environment where the question of what is the right benchmark has shifted so quickly. I think in the last couple of years, 
it's been so difficult for many businesses to think about what is the right salary benchmark. It's evolved so quickly in different markets and regions. It's uh, evolving every couple of months rather than every um, a couple of years or year. And I think one of the things that is increasingly difficult for organizations to do is really figure out focus. There are so many variables that are shifting at the same time. What do you think are the most important things, if there are any universal things or areas that most HR and TA leaders really should be focusing and prioritizing and getting? It's a tough question because there are a lot of topics. And I think the job of being an HR leader or a TA leader is getting harder and harder all the time. I will give you three themes that I think are, are really important. The first one is what we just talked about, which is actually how do you, especially given the great resignation, the great attrition, this unprecedented number of people who are quitting their jobs, even without another job to go to. So given that level of how do you attract great talent and create a really interesting value proposition, but then also importantly, once they arrive, how do you make sure you hang on to them? So that is certainly one theme that is going to be incredibly important and will differentiate the successes from the failures. A second theme is around learning because the world is changing so fast that a lot of our technical skills are actually getting quicker and quicker, right? Their shelf life is uh, is getting shorter and shorter. And so I think it's really important to create a culture and an organization environment that really prizes learning and encourages learning and feedback and mentoring and coaching and development, because that's how people really end up achieving their full potential. So the whole theme around learning, I think, is an incredibly important one. And then the third theme that I would just touch on is diversity and inclusion. This is a a passion of mine. I led quite a lot of the diversity efforts at McKinsey, and I have five daughters, so it's also a personal um, passion of mine. But I do think we've seen progress in some areas around creating more diverse and inclusive environments, but there's still a long way to go. And especially at the most senior levels, there's been a lot of progress, for example, in the UK of getting more women onto boards. But I would argue that's the easy bit where we've seen much less progress has been actually getting more women into the senior leadership roles. And so I think, you know, again, the whole diversity and inclusion effort is one that's really important. I think it helps to drive performance. You know, it's important on so many levels. It's not just the right thing to do, but it's also good for business, but it's hard and it takes a lot of work and a lot of thought. And many companies, frankly, are only at the start of their journey. I think the piece that you mentioned around learning, upskilling and reskilling is one of the things that is starting to help in some areas where diversity has been traditionally difficult, for example, in diversity in functions like engineering. I think nowadays it's easier for people to start switching into that job um, and not necessarily relying on whether you did a certain type of degree or studied computer science, which has been one of the barriers systemically to the sort of funnel of people that end up at certain roles. What do you think are some of the things that organizations should bear in mind to try and get the rollout of a new upskilling, reskilling strategy? You you touched earlier on working with some organizations that had to to start navigating that change. What are are some of the the things that help with that kind of strategy and drive to, to bring this into the culture of an organization succeed? There are a couple of things that I think are important, and I'll maybe just share a few themes and then give an example of, of how it comes together. So I, I think first it has to, the learning agenda has to be linked to the strategy and the business objectives. Of course, learning for its own sake is great, but it's particularly you know in service of the business objectives and what the company is trying to achieve. So linking it to the strategy. Secondly, empowering employees so that this is very much helping them achieve their full potential, giving them options and opportunities and information. And then creating a learning culture with all the different elements that actually come together, whether that's feedback or mentoring or coaching or formal training programs or on the job uh, 
experiences or what have you. And many of you will be familiar, but I do think that the example of what AT&T did is actually quite an interesting one where they knew that they were going to have a pretty massive strategic shift that was going to have major implications in terms of uh, the quantity and quality of skills and capabilities that were required and where they did that strategic workforce plan, but then they took it one step further and they actually published it. So people could actually see which jobs were gonna be increasing in demand, which jobs were gonna be decreasing in demand. And then they empowered the employees to say, okay, well, if this is the job that I'd like to go to next, how do I access that? What are the different opportunities in terms of development programs or in terms of even classes that I can take externally, et cetera, et cetera. And by doing that, AT&T actually did a remarkable job in shifting their strategy and ensuring that they had the skills uh, to get there in improving the internal culture towards learning and frankly in creating the talent internally so that they actually had the skills that they needed in order to go forward. A lot of companies in Europe are working on the same thing. SAP went through a very similar exercise. And interestingly, you know, a year and a half into their major reskilling, upskilling program, what you saw was business performance had improved. You saw that morale and employee engagement had gone up. So there were all sorts of benefits for doing that. It's not easy, but I think we have lots of examples uh, that show that it's absolutely possible, but you need to link it to strategy. You need to think about how you empower employees, and then you need to think about all the elements of a learning culture and a learning ecosystem to help accelerate that process. That is really refreshing advice. I think it's uh, it's one of those topics where thinking about what has led to some of these success stories and actually underpinning and linking it to the focus on it being authentically linked to the business goals and strategy. I, th I think that's a very important piece of advice for various leaders and organizations to think about uh, as they structure these initiatives. And on the topic of um, advice, if you were thinking about yourself when you were uh, starting this kind of role at McKinsey, when you were starting to advise companies on these types of changes, if you were to go back in time and give advice to your past self or even to uh, something that might be applicable to other leaders in this uh, industry facing these problems, what would it be? It's, it's a great question, Sultan. And actually what it makes me think about is one of our past global managing partners at McKinsey who decided that every day he was going to meet with at least two CEOs in whatever city he was, you know, wherever he was in the world. And at those meetings, he always asked two questions. The first question is, what's top of your agenda right now? And the second question is, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Anyway, after doing literally hundreds and hundreds of these meetings, Dom actually ended up publishing a book called Talent Wins because the answer to both questions were remarkably similar across a remarkably large number of the CEOs he talked to, which was, it was all about talent. And so the one piece of advice they would have given themselves, the one thing that was top of their agenda was talent. The one piece of advice they would have given their younger selves was around spending more time, investing more in identifying great talent, in nurturing and coaching and developing that talent, in positioning them for bigger roles more quickly, for moving out some of the blockers more quickly. So I think that would probably be the one piece of advice I probably would have given myself too, is actually to spend even more time identifying great talent, nurturing it, cultivating it, and making sure that I was creating a culture that would enable that talent to really thrive. That is a extremely fitting advice for the talent blueprint narrative that we've had here today. And I think the promising thing is we have, as you touched on earlier, more tools to start being more strategic and structured about this. The ways in which we can identify talent, nurture talent, cultify talent, these topics are becoming more data-driven. We have more visibility into, into how well we're doing on these topics. So if we fast forward, I guess with some optimism around where things are heading in this world of the talent agenda, and if you came back in the future, five years from now, what do you think has changed? 
Well, for sure, I think data and technology will have transformed the whole talent landscape. And I, I see that with Beamery and all the things that you're capable of doing with AI and with machine learning and with all this amazing new tech. So I, I do think that is going to fundamentally transform the talent landscape. That's for sure. The hope that I have is that five years from now, the situation will be very different on diversity and inclusion. I've been looking at this for the last 15, 20 years. We've made some progress, but honestly, it's been pretty incremental. And I think it's been glacially slow. For sure, data and technology will transform the landscape. It's going to look super different five years from now. I hope DNI will look different. You and me both, Mary. As you know, we founded Beamery on the mission to create equal access to work. And I hope that some of the things that are coming from a technology perspective when it comes to AI will actually be a, a part of the shift incrementally or otherwise in that direction. I think starting to look at the world through skills, capabilities, potential, I think is, is hopefully nudging us in that direction. But as you say, it takes a, a lot of things to happen in parallel in order to get this right and hope for that to be five years away and not longer. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a, an amazing conversation. Really, really appreciate it. And Really appreciate all the insights. Of course, always a pleasure. Take care, Sultan. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for enterprises to drive more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce with industry-leading AI. Beamery optimizes every step of the talent lifecycle, from sourcing and identifying talent with the right skills and potential, to building and marketing your employment brand, creating an internal talent marketplace, and mobilizing your employees through getting the reporting and talent insights that you need to make better decisions about your workforce. Are you ready to unlock your talent? Learn more at Beamery.com.